Oh, you dead, who at Gettysburg have baptized with your blood the second birth of freedom in America, how you are to be envied. New York Times Washington Bureau Chief Samuel Wilkinson penned these poignant words only hours after locating the remains of his oldest son, Bayard. Bayard, a lieutenant in the Union Army, had been killed just days earlier on the vast fields of Gettysburg. The imagery conjured up by his delicate phrasing would foreshadow the language that Lincoln would make famous in the Gettysburg Address just four months later. Decades earlier, the Wilkeson family had been among the first to settle in what would later become the city of Buffalo. The settlement lay at the mouth of the Buffalo Creek, a winding waterway, the contents of which ultimately emptied into Lake Erie. At the end of the War of 1812, another Samuel Wilkeson, father of the New York Times correspondent, moved his family to the small village and opened a law practice. During the War of 1812, the village known then as Buffalo Creek, was burned by the British. As its residents rebuilt their homes and businesses following the war, the area's attention turned toward the growing discussion of the Erie Canal, an initiative of future New York State Governor DeWitt Clinton. The 363-mile-long man-made waterway would connect the Atlantic Ocean to Lake Erie, greatly improving the speed of cross-state shipping and travel. But by the time construction on the canal began in 1817, the location in which the waterway would end was not yet decided. That is until Samuel Wilkinson took the issue quite literally into his own hands. You see, the harbor at Wilkinson's hometown of Buffalo was, well, problematic. Sand, which tended to collect in the harbor, posed an issue for incoming ships. On the other hand, just north of Buffalo was the hamlet of Black Rock. Nestled at the mouth of Skijakwita Creek, the village was named after a long piece of black chert, known as the Black Rock, that extended out into the Niagara River. The hamlet was the home of Peter Buell Porter, a former U.S. congressman and war hero. Porter's advocacy, along with Black Rock's existing harbor, made it the front-runner for the canal's western terminus. But Wilkeson and others were not willing to cede control of the canal to the residents of Black Rock. To deal with the harbor problem, Samuel proposed changing the course of the river through the use of dams and piers. This would increase the flow of the water and scour away the sand that tended to collect at the river's mouth. As the canal neared its completion, project commissioners arrived in Buffalo to determine where it would end, thus ending the Black Rock-Buffalo controversy once and for all. Porter made his arguments in favor of Black Rock, while Wilkeson championed Buffalo. In the end, however, it was Mother Nature that would settle the argument. Studying the terrain, canal engineers determined that the natural tilt of the land between Buffalo and Tonawanda an area just to its north, would mean less digging. In addition, a violent storm had swept away much of Black Rock's dockage. 
Wilkeson's efforts proved instrumental in ensuring the canal connected Albany to Buffalo and not to Blackrock. His success would lead to his election as Buffalo mayor in 1836, and in the years to come, his descendants would continue to shape the Queen City of the Lakes. Now, Samuel Wilkeson had six children, many of whom continued in their father's local entrepreneurial endeavors. His youngest, Samuel Jr., however, took a different path than his siblings. He decided to go into the newspaper business. He started locally at first, but soon became a correspondent for the New York Times. Samuel was an ardent abolitionist and was also connected to another progressive cause, women's rights. In 1842, he married Catherine Cady, sister of outspoken women's rights activist Elizabeth Cady Stanton. In 1861, when fighting broke out in the Civil War, Sam headed for the front lines where he would report on the war for his paper. While antiquated by modern standards, the Civil War showcased a wide array of newer technologies. Hot air balloons, trains, ironclad warships, advanced weaponry, and the telegraph. President Abraham Lincoln often spent long nights sitting in the War Department's telegraph office reading incoming dispatches. Telegraphy also revolutionized the way war was covered from the front. Instead of reports being sent by mail or delivered by hand, correspondents could now file stories over the telegraph lines that often accompanied the army. This immediacy impacted public perceptions of the war and incentivized newspapers to send reporters to travel with Union armies. An estimated 200 reporters from both the North as well as the South were tasked with covering the brutal campaign. For Wilkeson, his experience would be anything but typical from the experienced journalist. His role as reporter would take him to the small Pennsylvania town of Gettysburg, where his son Bayard's unit was engaged in combat. Bayard joined the army in the fall of 1861 and was one of eight members of the Wilkeson family to take part in the war. Being from a prominent family, Bayard, even at the young age of only 17, was commissioned as a lieutenant in the U.S. artillery. His unit was sent to the Virginia Tidewater for garrison duty. Though undoubtedly young for such a leadership position, Bayard caught the eye of his superiors through his actions at Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, and Deserted House. Despite his performance at Chancellorsville, the battle was a disastrous defeat for the Union. Baird's battery of six guns was transferred to Oliver O. Howard's 11th Corps, a change that did not sit well with the young officer. The 11th had achieved a rather disgraceful reputation in the Army of the Potomac. Composed largely of German immigrants who had come to the U.S. after the failed revolution of 1848, the 48ers, as they were known, had been blamed for the defeat at Chancellorsville. Derogatorily called the Flying Dutchmen for their hasty retreat at the battle, the reality was much more nuanced. Battlefield failures were more a factor of the Corps' leadership than the courage of its German recruits. Nonetheless, the 11th was not quite the prime posting that Bayard Wilkeson had hoped for. 
In July 1863, Confederate General Robert E. Lee led his Army of Northern Virginia into Pennsylvania. His invasion of the North was intended to give Southern farmers a break from all the destruction that the first two years of the war had taken on their land. Union General Gordon Meade maneuvered to keep the Army of the Potomac between Lee and Washington, D.C., while searching for a place to draw Lee into battle. Neither Meade nor Lee intended to fight on the hills south of Gettysburg, but almost entirely by accident, that's exactly what happened. On July 1st, 1863, Bayard's Battery G approached Gettysburg from the south and was directed northeast of the village to blunt Confederate General Richard Ewell's incoming soldiers. Union General Francis Barlow ordered Wilkeson to move onto a prominent rise of land, which allowed Bayard to track the movements of enemy troops as they marched toward Gettysburg. Today, that rise is known as Barlow's Knoll. Unfortunately for Wilkeson, the position on Barlow's Knoll exposed him to rebel cannon fire. Now, although he was the youngest artillery officer on the field that day, Baird, barely 19 years old, was determined to get his guns into action. Stride his horse, he was an obvious target for Confederate gunners. And while still mounted, young Baird was struck in the right leg by a cannonball. It's at this point of the battle that the truth of what happened next gets caught up in the mythology of the battle. Popular accounts hold that Wilkeson removed his officer's sash and used it to fashion a tourniquet. He then allegedly used his pocket knife to cut away the mangled remains of his leg. This account, which is the bedrock of the legendary story, stems from the reporting of Charles Coffin, war correspondent for the Boston Journal. No official mention of the self-amputation appears in any military records or after-action reports from Battery G. While many questioned the story's accuracy, his father Samuel never made any attempt to correct Coffin's retelling. For a brief moment, Bayard attempted to stay with his guns and direct their fire. But the grievous nature of his wound made that nearly impossible. He was carried to the almshouse where the 11th Corps had established a field hospital. When he arrived at the aid station, Wilkeson was still conscious. The 11th Corps was crumbling. Even as the remains of Wilkeson's battery fought to buy time for fleeing Union forces, and the almshouse where Bayard lay was overrun by rebels. It was there that the young lieutenant died. Baird's father, Samuel, covering the war for the New York Times, arrived at General Meade's headquarters later that same day. Only he had no way of knowing what had happened that day on Barlow's Knoll. Samuel had learned that his son had been wounded, 
but had no idea whether he was dead, alive, or a prisoner of war. Samuel spent the next two days continuing to report on the fighting, all while the condition of his son weighed on his mind. On July 3rd, he filed a report on the famed Pickett's Charge, an account that is still considered to be one of the best dispatches about the Union victory along the stone wall that became the high watermark of the Confederacy. As Lee's Army of Northern Virginia retreated, Samuel set out to discover what had happened to Baird. He interviewed soldiers from units on the eastern edge of the battlefield and made his way to the almshouse where Bayard had died. Even as he reflected on the grief he felt sitting by the wet clay of his son's grave, Samuel questioned whether Barlow had made a sound tactical decision in putting Battery G in such an exposed position. Others would argue that the actions of the 11th Corps had bought time for Meade to bring up the rest of the army and set the stage for the largest Union victory of the war. On the evening of July 4th, Samuel began writing his account of the battle for the New York Times from the Army of the Potomac's headquarters. It would be published two days later. His detailed account of the battle at Gettysburg consumed nearly three columns on the paper's front page before spilling onto page eight. It began, Who can write the history of a battle whose eyes are immovably fastened upon a central figure of transcendingly absorbing interest, the dead body of an oldest born, crushed by a shell in a position where a battery should never have been sent, and abandoned to death in a building where surgeons dared not stay? Baird was not the only Wilkeson to die in the war. His cousin, John Wilkes Wilkeson, was killed at the Battle of Seven Pines in the spring of 1862. Samuel helped his brother locate John's body and bring it back to Buffalo for burial. A year later, his brother did the same after Gettysburg. Today, Baird and John lie in the shadow of their grandfather Samuel's obelisk-shaped grave marker in Buffalo's Forest Lawn Cemetery. Etched into the marker are the words Urbem Condidit, which in Latin means he founded the city. Wilkeson Point on the outer harbor is named in his honor. Now, when I walk into work each day at the History Museum, I'm surrounded by things left behind by those who came before. Paintings, photographs, clothing, weapons, tools, the list just goes on and on. And they each have stories like the one we heard today. Now, one of my personal favorite things in the museum is located on the second floor inside of our new continuum exhibit. You walk into the second room, turn left, look down, you'll see a small display case and inside is a skeleton key. Now, if we were back in time, say 175 years, you could use that skeleton key to open the front door of Samuel Wilkinson Sr.'s home. The home was located on the site of today's Buffalo City Hall. Look up from there and you'll see a portrait of Samuel. Now, the key is just a key, but when it's attached to a story such as this, it opens the door to so much more than just a house. Only a few feet away from Samuel's key is an oil painting of Baird in uniform. The painting by artist W.E. LaMontagne was done in 1867, four years after Baird's untimely death at Gettysburg. It recently underwent conservation treatment thanks to a longtime supporter of the museum who was fascinated by his story. 
just one story among thousands at the museum, waiting to be heard, retold, and kept alive. Today's story was written by Erie County historian Doug Kohler and produced by me, Anthony Greco. In addition to helping with the episode, Doug co-curated the museum's Continuum exhibit, which I hope you all have an opportunity to come see. Thank you all again for listening, and do us a favor and tell your friends and family about the podcast. And if you're listening to the podcast through an Apple device, please rate and review us, which would be a huge help for our visibility in the podcast app. The Buffalo History Museum podcast is sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by m and Bank and from our donors, members and friends.